Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. My name is Jacob Keynes, and this month we're joined by Aidan Feldkamp. Aidan is a classically trained opera vocalist turned librettist and writer and arts administrator while also maintaining performances. We chat with Aidan about a book that they curated that is the first edition of Repertoire for Trans Voices in the World. Sammy and I hope you enjoy our chat with Aidan on the Classical Queer Podcast. Uh, so welcome everyone to the next episode of the Classical Queer Podcast. And this week, Jacob and I are pleased to welcome Aidan Feltkamp, who is a librettist, producer, writer and educator, uh, which puts us to shame, really, <laughs> only doing one thing at a time. So that's that's uh, it's great to have you here, Aidan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So we'll start with our, our usual way of starting, which is, uh, could we ask you to say a little bit about yourself and uh, tell us a bit of your background and, and how you got into uh, li- writing librettos? Sure. So I'm a trans non-binary writer and creator. I'm trying to put everything under one word, but it's always hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I've realized I just love to build things and um, that thing can be a libretto, that thing could be uh, an anthology, a project, a program. So, um, but I started as a cellist, um, playing cello oh. in uh, Hicksville, New York, which sounds fake but is real. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I grew up in the little suburban life uh, on Long Island, New York. Um, I try to hide my accent, but it comes through sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I uh, went to school for for music and actually discovered opera while I was in undergrad and absolutely fell in love. Um, Started to study as a mezzo-soprano and went on to do that, sing professionally, went to um, Bard College Conservatory of Music for a master's, had an amazing, amazing time working there with Kaya Obama and Don Upshaw and uh, got into new music there. And since then was doing mostly Baroque music and new music. and then it, I hit kind of a, a wall of uh, health issues and then also just needing to transition. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do with opera that isn't singing? And realized <laughs> that I love to write. I've been writing since I was uh, you know, younger. I had a few short stories published, had some poetry published. Um, and I was like, well, why don't I try writing opera? Like, why not? <laughs> so I started and I haven't stopped. I, I really love it. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And my day job, I work at the American Composers Orchestra as their director of composer advancement and diversity. So I came into classical music admin as a diversity specialist and have since been working with composers and new music and creating training programs and accessible opportunities there. So yeah, it's been fun. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. What a great, what a great, uh, great little CV there. I mean, that's sort of, it's kind of interesting to see how people move across the field, as it were, you know, starting in one thing and then morphing into another. It, it was kind of, when I was looking at your your website, there were a couple of quotes on there. I, I just have to read out because I think they were fantastic. The first one was a New York Times one and it said, appending preconceptions about voice and gender 
which I, which I think is is something I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about quite a bit I think during during today. Um, the other one which I really think is fantastic is uh, Aidan's written work spans the serious and the ridiculous, the real and the surreal, <laughs> and and that 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 just I I think it's amazing that that kind you can get that kind of quote. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your sort of span of work. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, you've got this sort of serious, ridiculous, you know, surreal type feel to it. It's kind of a wide range. I mean, to be honest, I love to write comedy and I'm a very pretty, like, lighthearted person. But <laughs> I seem to, like, really get drawn into these projects that are really serious. And um, so in my writing background, I started as a sci-fi writer. It's what has been my, like, oh, impetus for writing. Okay. I love science fiction. Um, and and then as an emo teammate, teenager, started writing poetry and kind of never stopped. And so <laughs> I, I came from this background of this like kind of very serious poetry and this very like fun and lighthearted action sci-fi side. Um, and then as I got into opera and started like getting into the history side of classical music, I became very interested in historical fiction and in learning about the people that were creating these works that I loved so much. And so um, in undergrad, I did a project. I wrote like um, a novella about uh, Mozart creating Così Fan Tutte and like what it was like to be an opera singer in that time. And like went and like looked through the annals of um, the opera house and like what day did they rehearse and where did they rehearse and who was in the cast and who, were that, who was that cast person dating at the time and like kind of like reading <laughs> diaries and letters and... I, I, I found that I really loved that side of history, that like first person side of history. And so since then, I think a lot of my libretto writing has come from that place. Like I've written about Clara yeah. Schumann. I've written now about Eva, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and yeah, so I kind of get pulled into these like historical fiction side writing. And I do really enjoy it because it's this combination of like real life emotional stuff but then this also like researchy, nitty gritty kind of side of things where it's mm. a world that is ours, but isn't ours because it's so long ago. And that's kind of like where the science fiction comes in that like it's our world, but it's different. And so I think that is the connection there that I find really exciting. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a known science fiction geek. I just love all science fiction. And, and, and kind of there's quite a lot of commonality between history and science fiction, I feel. You know, it's, it's looking out of time and, and you kind of, it gives you more freedom in a sense than talking about the immediate present. So, so I can kind of see how the two link together. It's, it's kind of an interesting, you know, um, juxtaposition of the two extremes, if you like, of the past and the future. Yeah. And it makes a lot of opera sense to me as well. Like opera is such a like elevated camp, weird, uh, like fantasy world at the best of times anyway. And it's funny you say you, you came to opera through uh, like e uh, emo teenage poetry writing. Like that <laughs> yeah. makes sense for opera too. Like that's a very <laughs> opera thing. Like opera's so all of those things that, that, it, it may not seem on the surface to be a, a kind of a, a happy marriage, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we'll go to the book. Let's talk about the book. Cause this is, this is uh, quite an exciting thing. Um, you've curated uh, an, a new anthology of new music for trans and non-binary, non-binary. <laughs> 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 
But it's going to be one of those shows for trans and non-binary voices. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about how how this book came about. I mean, is this something you just sort of thought this sounds fun, or or how did you get to there? Um, so it's actually a few things kind of culminating together, as it usually goes. Um, I've been thinking a lot um, for the past few years, before transitioning physically and then since, about like how does voice and gender connect? How do voice types and gender connect? And it was something that I was kind of talking with my friends a lot about. And um, when I was on one of my trips for, for American Composers Orchestra, um, I was speaking with Frank O'Tieri, who's the editor of New Music Box. He works for New Music USA. And I was talking about this idea of gender and voice. And it's something that he's worked a little bit with in his own compositional works. And he said, you know, why don't you write for New Music Box about this? It's such an interesting topic and no one's really talked about it. And I was like, cool, let's do it. And so we sat down and like worked out this like four part series about gender, about voice type, about how we can kind of begin to uncouple them um, and how it's not only for the benefit of trans and non-binary people, but also cisgender people who are gender non-conforming. Like if I'm a slightly masculine cis woman, you know, like they also kind of fight these stereotypes of voice type or even someone whose voice is just kind of sitting between voice types as we think of them, like how they're kind of like punished because their repertoire doesn't fit this specific box. Um, and yeah. so kind of speaking about that, and as I was doing that work, um, you know, thinking back to my time singing art song and, and opera and thinking about what were the roles that I felt most attracted to, what were the songs and how I kind of really struggled with gender in voice in art song, in opera. And was like, I wonder if there's repertoire out there beyond what I know, like written specifically for ungendered voices or non-binary voices or trans voices. Mm -hmm. And I was following, you know, trans singers at the time who were creating the first roles written as trans characters in opera. Mm -hmm. and, and it was all very exciting. But like, I was looking and looking because I was like, surely someone's put together something. You know, like, and yeah, must I mean, be there, somewhere. <laughs> there must be there. And so I was looking and looking and, and ever since I wrote those articles, I've been getting, um, emails and, and calls and messages on Facebook from people I know, people I don't know who are either voice teachers or trans and non-binary singers themselves saying, you know, do you have repertoire for this? And I was like, mm. yes, but like, I, I always want to like send them somewhere to look and to explore on their own somewhere to start, you know? And, and answering the same question over and over again. And I was like, you know, there's not an anthology. There should be an anthology. And at the exact same time, mm -hmm. I was um, accepted as a Turn the Spotlight Fellow, which is uh, a nonprofit that works with um, women, trans, and non-binary arts leaders to create projects, to, to offer mentorship, to offer support. Um, and so I was like, this is going to be my project. And so, um, yeah. you know, with their help and, uh, you know, we reached out to New Music Shelf. They were super into it. Um, they'd never done an anthology that wasn't voice type specific. So this was like a first, but um, it was also a first because there's no anthology about trans and for trans and non-binary yeah. singers, which like, again, I was just like, why hasn't anyone done this? I guess is <laughs> so that's kind of my mentality of life. It's like if someone hasn't done it and you think that you can do it, you should. And I feel that with my background that I'm, you know, I really know what I'm doing here. And also I had the help that I needed of like, mm. you know, a publisher and Kathy Kelly, who was my mentor would turn the spotlight like her and all of the mentors and turn the spotlight, all of their knowledge and expertise, like helped me 
with the skills that I already had and the knowledge I already had to build this thing. And so, like, it really was a team effort, but I felt happy that I could put my skills, my specific skills to use and create something that didn't exist and that others can benefit from. So I'm just, I'm so excited. It's out in the world, and I'm just... It was such a joy to like not only have all this new music that I knew and didn't know coming to me mm. and exploring it and learning it and then putting it together into something um, that you know showcases it that gives it a platform that just makes me really happy so this has been you know my favorite project and it's been you know throughout covid so it's had some weird mm. setbacks <laughs> but it's happened and so it's something I've looked to through this time you know of like something that's exciting and, and joyful to to build. It, it was kind of interesting because uh, Ryan and Gleave, who who you know, was 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 one of the people I was talking to a little while ago, and and he said, by the way, have you seen this book? I said, book, what what book? And he said, this anthology, it's it's coming out, it's it's really really great. And I went, oh yeah yeah yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know, it's an anthology. And I said, so so are there? There must be lots of these out there. <laughs> Just like you said, and it was like Ryan was like, no, 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 you don't understand. You do not understand. <laughs> this is the first anthology there is. You have to, you have to go and look, you have to. Do. So it was kind of interesting, and and I, it may sound quite to a lot of people maybe a little overegged, but but it really is the first time that something like this has been put together, and I think that's really unique, and I think it's an it's absolutely superb that this has come out. To be honest. I just hope there's and more. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think one, there, there absolutely one. will be. I mean, given the list of people, I was looking through the, the composers. Like, it's uh, it's so like encouraging and exciting that there are so many people, even in volume one, and so many people that I have never heard of, and people that I'm excited to like explore. And it's uh, you know these things are not uh, easy projects to do. Obviously, like they're they're huge undertakings, uh, and like you say, to to have done it even in the past uh, two years, like under COVID world, like that's hard enough to do under a normal. Uh, kind of set up circumstances but how did you go about uh like contacting everybody like i'm assuming there are many new names to you some people you knew what was that process like uh to, to kind of build this uh, from scratch because there is no model there is no uh past jumping off point yeah so i'm lucky actually because so my job my day job that i've had for the past four years or so um, a huge component of it is running these readings programs. And part of the orchestral reading program is taking in submissions and going through the review process and choosing reading the ones that will be read. So, you know, you get 300 applications and you can choose 12. How do you do that? And then coming in, why I was hired was that the applications were predominantly white, predominantly cisgender male, predominantly from a specific set of conservatories, and that was it. And so I was like, well, mm. it's recruitment time, you know? And so I completely <laughs> rebuilt their whole process. And now I'm so excited we get, like, you know, over 50% of the applications are from black, indigenous, people of color artists. Um, up to 30% of them are women. We have almost 10% trans and non-binary, which again, mm. these are all new people to me, which is mm. so exciting. Mm. Cause it's like, and so going into this process, I just went through it like I would with the earshot readings 
and um, you know, obviously, I have the the admin help of the publisher. But you know, we put together a call for scores. We had a specific set of criteria, and then, you know, obviously, I recruited people I knew. But I also went through the recruitment processes that I had put together for these other things of reaching out to people in a way or schools in a way that you you don't know these people, but you reach out to them with the information and ask them to pass it on or you reach out to others who might have references and then you reach out to them and it's a lot of this like invitation um and so it was a mix of people who just heard about it through someone that wasn't me and then uh you know people that i did know actually actively recruiting them and so it was a mix and it it was so exciting i got so much music that from people i'd never heard of and didn't know like Rylan I met through this project like never heard oh, his work before and it's so good yeah. so like yeah. you know so I was very lucky we had so many submissions and like we easily have enough stuff for another volume like today so <laughs> you know fantastic so so good and so I'm assuming that's the next step you're gonna, you're gonna be working <laughs> on volume two I don't know <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying it. I'm not promising anything, but um, you know, we're, the publisher and I are just kind of going through all the uh, publicity for this one, and you know, trying to mm-hmm. make sure as many people as possible know it exists. Because, I mean, what a joy it would be to be a non-binary singer You're coming into undergrad. You go to your school's music library and you look through the anthologies and you find one for mm-hmm. you. You know, like yeah, that's my exactly. that's what I want. You know. That's my dream. Yeah, yeah as, as the, it should be. Yeah. yeah, it's the kind of thing that should be, a, as you say, in every conservatory, every university, every teaching place, that there is something for, for trans and non-binary voices. It, it should be the standard, stand, a standard work in a sense. So there we go. We, we've sold that one, I think, to everyone. We've just, we've just, <laughs> we just sold a million copies around the world there for you. Um, so that's a fantastic book, but but of course that's not the only thing you do. You know, there's the curation of the book, which has been absolutely fantastic, but there's libretto work you do as well, and and we're going to start by by talking about Space Station One Eight Nine because this this just absolutely blew me away to be honest. So so introduce Space Station One Eight Nine for the audience, please uh, please Aiden. Sure. Um, so Space Station One Eight Nine is an Instagram opera, I think, is what they're calling it. So basically, it's seven episodes. Each one is one minute long. And uh, it explores the what's happening to a woman who works on a space station by herself. And the idea is that it's in this future where, you know, kind of like now, there's these jobs that nobody wants, but you have to take them because mm-hmm. you have to make money. And so one of these jobs is kind of like sitting up on this space station monitoring. And like no one really, like talks back to you you're kind of like talking to yourself like giving reports and sending information back down to earth or to other space stations but you're not really getting any human contact and so it's about this woman she's on the space station and she hears something that's not supposed to be there and and so it kind of like for a moment it becomes like a bit horror because it's this question of like what's happening and then at the end has this very kind of like sci-fi ending um, mm. but so the story was my idea, but the project was not. So, um, Lisa Nair, who is a mezzo soprano and, uh, she also kind of like commissions a lot of new work and JL Marler, who is, a uh, the composer, uh, her name is Jess. So Jess has been a friend of mine for quite a while and we always look for ways to like work together. And so she actually came to me with this project. She's like, I want to write about like you know, being 
this isolation and this like self-reflection that comes from isolation but I don't know what I want to do with it except for that I want it to be super poetic and I want to use uh, a lot of electronics um, in the music and and it's for one singer and you know just like a micro opera and uh, you know and I can't find anyone to write it who's like poetic enough but also construct like constructing a plot around it so it's not so loose that there's nothing happening and I was like, well, you came to the right person. Let's make a thing. <laughs> and so it was really fun because it's like, um, you know, I, I had a lot of flexibility in the plot and, and I had a lot of flexibility in the character and things like that. I just, you know, had to follow this theme that Jess had in mind. And Lisa was the singer and I knew that. So um, kind of building mm-hmm. something around that. And so this is actually the, definitely the loosest and most poetic sci-fi thing I've ever written. Um, and it was really fun and, uh, just, just, you know, really amazing job with it, brought it to life in a way that only she can. So, yeah, we're, we're going to hear a little bit of it now. So we're going to hear, so, so the fantastic thing about this is it's, it's Instagram opera. So it's seven, one minute episodes, which I think is just absolutely brilliant in trying to work that out. So we're going to listen to episode one uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. anyone's listening day 315 space station 189 maybe now it'll feel less ridiculous to talk out loud when I'm all alone not today Yeah, I, I am always curious about like a collaboration between uh, like librettist and composer because I've, you know, I've commissioned several things in the past and I've worked with librettists and I've worked with a lot of composers and it's it's always uh, the question of like which comes first and who collaborates uh, the first with whom and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the and maybe especially because it's electronic based, it's maybe harder to start with the music and, and overlay lyric in, but who, who did what first and how did, how did it all come about? Yeah. So the, I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that generally the librettist will start writing first and then the composer will add their music. And then the amount of collaboration or change to the libretto at that point is extremely variable depending on Mm -hmm. the person and the collaboration and everything. And even with me, it's like, each co- each composer I work with is a totally different experience, but I'm not the kind of librettist who's very good at hearing music and setting words to it. I'm very mm. much, I'm hearing, like, I'll write the text and I will hear, like, the rhythmic structure or, you know, if we're setting some kind of, like, rhyme structure or or if it's totally loose, like... But I'm very rhythmic in my writing, in my poetry in general, and so it kind of lends itself well to being set to music in that way. But it's also usually not super uniform unless the composer really wants it. Um, 
so it's a, it's a bit more free form. So I think it works well for Jess's writing style because she very much comes from not only opera, but this kind of like punk rock lyric sound. And so mm. the combination of the two is really fun. And so I know that about her work. And so I wrote the piece with that in mind. Um, but generally mm. I'll write it out. The composer will look at it, ask for changes i'll change it then they'll start to set it sometimes when they're setting it they'll ask for changes again jess actually didn't for this one Mm. um so generally like i changed maybe a word or two here but mostly after it was done she set it as is and like we kind of went from there um which is not how it always goes but that's how it went with her and it was it was a really quick process she's like a fast writer i think um Mm. maybe it was just this project Mm. but i feel like it happened really fast usually i write a libretto and then i forget that it ever happened and then a year later i hear (laughs) it's set to music and i'm like wait i wrote that (laughs) i know those words i know those words yeah so it's kind of like usually there's way more space um, but this one, it was kind of like a really quick turnaround and then it existed and, um, it was just really cool. Um, but the collaboration between us was very much upfront. It was figuring out the theme ahead of time, figuring out the style ahead of time, figuring out the, the plot, um, okaying the plot with her, okaying the character with her working through kind of, she had a really specific soundscape in mind. And so actually she would share that with me. We actually built like a playlist of other songs that that had like similar sounds that we were sharing. There were images that we were sharing back and forth. And so we kind of really were were focusing on mood. We were focusing on theme. Um, And then I kind of built the lyrics around that. But there was a lot of work ahead of time, a lot of like table work before I started writing. Did you do a lot of research for, for, for writing this? I mean, did you go away and look at astronauts' transcripts of the the space station or the shuttle or something? I'm just kind of curious. That's really interesting. Um, this is the one I definitely did the least amount of research on. But I think it's because, like, it's something I followed for my whole life. Like, I've been super interested in, in the space station that is up there now. And I've been following its mm. progress as long as I can remember. So it's kind of like... It has been researched, but like kind of just passively over time myself. Um, But I think a lot of my research came from actually watching like old Doctor Who and old Twilight Zone. (laughs) Like that really influenced this piece (laughs) more than anything, actually, more than real life, (laughs) to be be honest. But but it's kind of interesting because, uh, I mean, it sounds like I'm name dropping. I worked some years ago um, in, in the US and I worked uh, for NASA at the time on and I was working with, on, with the shuttle. And we were talking to some of the astronauts and this kind of thing. And one of the two things you actually put in there kind of sound like some of the things they said, particularly this sort of fascination with sound and and, you know, any little sound that's out of the ordinary. You know, everything mm-hmm. is immediately a heightened sense of... Oh, what what is are, are we doomed now is there something that's dooming us because something's happened and this kind of thing and and they were always like on this heightened sort of like edge of that and i kind of get that from some of what you've got in there is this, this you know when the when is this thing happening you know sort of thing which we don't know about and 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 it's so, so it's kind of interesting that you sort of got that even though you didn't research into that it's, that's super interesting that's really cool thank you for sharing yeah, yeah. Well, it, it kind of it was kind of fascinating because, you know, also the bit about I think is also quite interesting, you know, when you're isolated, this bit about sleeping for so long and, and always feeling tired, I think is quite, yeah, really common. So it, it kind of is like, um, 
although it's said in a space station, I think is quite common for it, it has a common feeling for people who are, are lonely or isolated as well. You know, the back on Earth, if you like, you know, somebody who is isolated, who doesn't have contact, who doesn't have family, friends and this kind of thing. So it's a it's a little bit like being stuck in your flat and, and having nobody to talk to. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> that's definitely where I was writing from. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. So. Wait. Well. Well. You. You hit it. I think is the is the thing. I think we we got that. I think from that. So it's kind of interesting. And now, I think it, it paired nicely. Sorry with the uh, like the, uh, the 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 compositional style. I mean, like electronics and, and voice are certainly not necessarily a new pairing, but to to add the element of you know space and isolation and and uh, how do you go down that road without it being too kitsch or too on the nose you know how do you pair uh lyrics with uh that music without it being like too cartoony and and kind of spacey but i I think it hit like such a nice balance of uh obviously it's it's talking about space and the, the references are very clear but it's not so uh, over the top and on the nose that it kind of takes you out of being invested in the in the story um and i don't know did you think about how that uh would translate while you were writing the libretto at all being on the nose or too on the nose is literally like my greatest fear when writing any libretto because mm. to me like opera it does ride this very fine line of like being so extravagant like everyone's singing all the time but yet not too much unless it's meant to be like very kitschy like there's times mm. where that's needed and awesome but like often you don't want that so um it's and like being able to tell the story without like telling it like this is what's happening and like mm. like being mm. obscure enough but not too obscure that people can't follow it so I mean, to me, like when I listen to an opera and the libretto is like really on the nose, it really bothers me. Like I feel like myself like cringing in the mm. audience, you know, and I and I think that's one of the things I try not to write from fear of anything, really. But if I do have <laughs> a fear of something, it's definitely of being like too on the nose, like just hitting the nail too hard. Um, mm. And then because I think you lose art there, like you lose the art form, like that's not Mm-hmm. when things are at its best. So I'm glad that it didn't do that. <laughs> no, there's like a power in the subtlety. It's it's kind of, I mean, for something, again, that is so, uh, like, clearly placed, you're, you're writing about, like, a really specific uh, set of uh, things and thoughts, but it, it really is quite subtle, given uh, how specific we are talking about, like, space, you know? I, I think it also builds this tension as well, which I kind of I kind mm. of think when you when you're not, you know, if, you, if you're talking like A happens, then B, then C, you, you don't build attention. But if you've got, if you're describing around it and you're letting the user, the person listening's imagination work on that, then you're building some kind of tension in the story. And I think that's that's kind of what's nice about this is that, you know, there's the hidden stuff is 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 for your imagination to fill in the gaps, which I kind of like. Yeah, I think leaving space for the, listener or the reader or whoever is like in experiencing your story leaving space for their imagination is really crucial to me um because i love world building i love character building and i never want to like push all of it on to the reader or the listener because i think 
that having that space mm. to imagine is actually that space to connect. Because if the person experiencing the piece doesn't connect to it, like to me, what's the point? <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a, in a piece like this where you've got this um, uh, this noise, we, we won't go into what it is if people want to listen to this, but you've got like a you know you've got this 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 sound, and and it kind of like you know it takes you back to like kind of like horror stories. You know, it's it's the sound you had as a kid somewhere, and and this kind of thing, and and when you see the horror film actually put out before you, I always find them. I start laughing because you actually see what the horror is. The horror stories are actually much more, much much more, you know, horrifying if you don't see what it is, and it's hidden, and it's your imagination which is working, and and that's kind of what you've got here. What what is this happening? What is going on? I can I can make up a hundred stories here every single time, and everyone is different. So it's it sort of gives you a chance to have more stories than there are episodes, if you see what I mean. You can build up from it into a different 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 um, different world, as it were. Yeah. And maybe a good transition to I mean, talking about building stories and building character that. You know, we, we have this uh, a fictional story that you, you create, you write, uh, and then transitioning to talking about this other piece that we want to talk about today, even the angel of death, that you have, uh, like a very real human and uh, a very clear story. And how, how does your writing change when you are telling somebody else's very lived experience? And maybe we'll start with, maybe before we get into that, tell us about the piece in general. Um, and then we'll, we'll, kind of unpack it a bit. Sure. Um, Eva and the Angel of Death is a Holocaust remembrance opera based on the real life lived story of Eva Moses Kor, who was a, um, I don't, I don't want to say participant, like she was part of the twin experiments in Auschwitz by Dr. Mengele. And so what was happening there was, um, if you came into Auschwitz and were a kid or a teenager and you had an identical twin, they would actually take you aside um, and you'd be part of these experiments that Dr. Mengele was doing. And it all connects to this horrible idea of the master race and genetics and eugenics. And um, they were very interested to see how two identical twins would work, would respond differently over time and to different stimulus and Unfortunately, also just just to torture, like absolutely horrible. Um, but the thing about even the Angel of Death that's super interesting is that the story it starts it starts in Auschwitz, but it doesn't end and it ends there. But it's all about how Eva changes her life in a way that brings forgiveness and healing to her from the trauma that she went through as a child and um how does it change you and it, and it expands 50 years of her life um and when i was uh i was actually um you know uh it's not again it's not a story that i chose it's a story that kind of like came to me as a writer and i was just intrigued and concerned that i wasn't up to the task when i first read it but um it's just it's such an incredible story i, I just could not pass it by and like um, and, and it's just something that really needs to be told and is just becoming more and more important every year. And, um, and so the, the composer, Thomas mm. B. Yee, he's actually, uh, he's done a, quite a bit of Holocaust remembrance art. Um, and he's a real, um, you know, scholar in this area. And it's something that I've done 
uh, a few times before this, actually. So this isn't my first piece about this, but it's definitely the one that was the most uh, immediate because Eva, when I started writing, was still alive. And so I actually got to meet her, speak with her, interview her. It was uh, such an incredible experience. I mean, whenever I write about someone, they've passed away many years ago. And, and here was someone that I was writing about them and they were physically there and like I could speak with them. Mm. And she had a lot of, you know, interviews and she had written a book, which is what this is based on. So there was a lot of source material to work with, but also just speaking with her and meeting her. And so my writing style changed completely for this piece because I wanted to capture her voice and her, she's a very specific way of speaking. Mm. And it's really, it's really interesting because when mm. I first heard her, when I first watched her interviews, I'm like, oh, this is going to be tricky because in opera, everything has to be very fluid. Everything has to be very, you know, vowel centric. And her speech is, is extremely like forward and chopped and um you know english is her second or third or fourth language it's not her first language and so coming from that too mm -hmm. you like you hear mm -hmm. like the internal translation happening and and she's also such a gifted speaker at this point because she's done so much speaking and so hearing this like very polished speaking voice but then also her personal voice and mm -hmm. then her written voice which is different again and how do we bring all those together to be accurate and to be honoring her and her legacy and her personhood, but then also telling a story and a story that, like with the other story, that people will relate to, that people have a way to connect to. It's all about family. It's all about forgiveness, about how do we move on from trauma? How do we heal ourselves? And um, her idea of healing and of moving forward is about forgiving those who have wronged you. Um, and she's kind of known for forgiving the Nazis and forgiving Dr. Mengele, who was not only like her torturer, but also the cause of her twin sister's death. And um, mm. so like, how do we, you know, how do you reconcile that? And her answer to reconciling and to moving forward and healing is what the opera is about. Yeah, I think I, th I must admit, for me, I think I would have, if I had, if I was in this position of having to write a libretto for this, I think I would have been really panicked about trying to trying to do justice to such a difficult topic, um, you know, because it's almost one of those subjects where whatever you do, you're, you're going to be damned if you write one thing and damned if you don't sort of thing. It's kind it's kind of one of those things that you, you know, I, I can just see. Did, did, did it ever cross your mind about what you were getting into? I mean, did you suddenly go, oh, my God, what how, I'm, this is just way too way too complicated or way too difficult emotional yeah um i mean i i take you know these kinds of projects really seriously and so i mean i you know really did a lot of research and a lot of thinking before i even said like took on the project um but i knew that it was important and i um you know i knew that i had the skill set for it like and then i knew that i had people that i could go to to help me that's always the thing it's about surrounding yourself with people that you know can help you in the places that you aren't as skilled or would need an extra boost because it's just a challenge and then also knowing and assessing do i have the technical skills and do i have the emotional intelligence to do this piece and sometimes the answer is no but here i genuinely felt that through my research and thinking and um you know work that i've done in the past and who i am as a person that i felt that i was 
you know, able to do this. And and it was extremely daunting, but I, I kind of love a challenge. So there's also that part of me that was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to be something I've never done before. And I do think that, you know, taking on a challenge expands your artistry. It flexes your muscles and makes you better at what you're doing if you do it right. And, you know, and the way that I wrote it would be different than anyone else writing the same piece. Mm-hmm. That's always the way it goes. And so I was happy to bring my voice to it, but also to like not have that be the center in any way. Um, I think mm. I'm furthest back in this piece as a writer than any other piece I've written. Because um, I really did want Eva's voice to shine and the others in her life that are part of the opera. But also just this story of one acknowledging that the holocaust happened which was a huge part of her work was advocating because there were people even at the time who were just denying the holocaust which and she's like no we need to have this document we need to have these testimonies on file we need to have the information about what happened there everyone needs to know there can't be anyone denying this it was a huge part of her work and so that's a huge part of the opera but then you know this this idea of you know, I didn't want to, I want to talk about trauma in the piece, but I never want to re-traumatize those who would be most affected by the topic. And so that's another aspect of work, especially in the Holocaust remembrance work, but in other work as well, that like, if you're talking about something traumatic, you always want to create a piece that makes others who are not part of that trauma aware and understand, Mm -hmm but never re-traumatizing those who are most affected or would understand most what you're talking about. So that was the other kind of thing that I always had in my mind as I was writing this. So Act 1 does take place in Auschwitz, um, but Act 2 takes place 50 years later in America. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it really, it never gets super dark in the first act because even though we're in Auschwitz, she's 10 years old and like writing as a 10 year old and how a 10 year old understands what's happening around her is very different than her 50 year old self looking back on it or an adult writing from their point of view there so in that way we were able to you know thomas did a really fantastic job here too of like kind of it wasn't so dark um that it was like unbearable or re-traumatizing but it's also like you know what's going on and you hear mm. that, like, in the aria that I brought today, um, it's Eva, like, looking at the smokestacks of the, the yeah. gas chambers. And, like, we as the audience know that, but she, the only thing she sees is what she physically sees. And then, like, being like, I have to survive no matter what. And, like, that's her mm. answer to everything is, like, I have to survive no matter what. My sister has to survive no matter what. Like, that's the only thing on her mind. So um, that's kind of where the story is so i think i answered your question i hope i answered your question yeah no i mean i think it was i think again there's a good example here of of, as you said that the balance between being too obvious and and sort of you know i mean you could have gone down a very dark route and and described everything in excruciating detail which which as you say would probably re-traumatize a lot of people who 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 really don't want to be re-traumatized but but you've done this balance where you know what's going on as you say but but you've kind of used the 10 year old to keep us away from it in a way you know to you you know it but you don't you don't have it right in front of you and i think that's kind of a really clever way of doing it i think i think that's really put something you know uh, very positive into into the story there Well, we should have a listen. 
So we've heard uh, the smoke goes into the sky from Act One of Eva and the Angel of Death. Yeah, so this is this is as you said is from the the bit where the ten year old girl is is looking at what's going on and um, basically saying um, they've got to survive, they've got to live their life and, and just get out of it. Did you actually ever show these words to, to, to Eva? I mean, was she still alive when you'd finished, and, and, and how did she react? So um, she was. She saw a first um, polished draft of the whole thing, um, but 
she saw Act One as it is now, and um, Act Two almost completely as it is now. And I really wanted to make sure that she read it and approved of it before we move forward, um, because you know it's about her, it's about her life and her words. And um, she gave it uh, the go ahead, which <laughs> made me very happy. Um, and I didn't speak with her specifically after she read the. I, I spoke with her way before I started writing. Um, but through her agent, um, we were kind of conversing and, um, you know, she gave it the big thumbs up and didn't ask for any changes. So, um, that to me was a stamp of approval and, you know, having that was extraordinary. So she, she was very happy with it. Um, I'm, I'm only sorry that, you know, she didn't get to see or Mm. hear more of it, um, before she passed away, but. You know, these things, it was just amazing to have met her. And I know that her, you know, story will have an impact for, for many years. When did she pass away? It was, I think it was 2020. Um, It was the summer. um, So she would, um, she would lead tours to Auschwitz every, I think it was twice a year um, and would, you know, do a tour of the place, give speeches, talk about things, um, you know, real, her education and advocacy side. And so she was actually, um, there in, in, um, in Auschwitz or like outside of Auschwitz where that is now, um, when she passed away, cause she was leading one of those tours and it was actually, I was supposed to be there that, um, that time, but, uh, I wasn't able to travel, uh, because of work. So it must've been 2019, I guess, cause we were still mm-hmm. traveling. We would have to check, mm-hmm. but, um, she, I remember I, I follow her on Twitter and she's just like a big tweeter. And so like <laughs> she was tweeting pictures of like her in McDonald's, like outside of <laughs> Auschwitz, like eating chicken nuggets being like, yeah, like she, she wow. saw it as such a, like, you know, like, uh, F you to everybody in Auschwitz to like be there and be healthy and be eating what Mm. she wants and like, you know, just existing and living. And so like, that was her last thing that she tweeted before she like really unexpectedly passed away. And it was very weird because it was like, you know, I found out about it like a day after it happened or so. Um, and it, you know, it was really hard to take. And it was someone Mm. who like, you know, I'd only met her once. And, um, so it's not like I, you know, had a super strong connection to her in that way, but like, you know, as an artist and as a, you know, just like knowing her work and stuff, it was very strange that like, you know, it's very full circle almost that like she, I felt she was at peace, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why she mm-hmm. could pass away. And, and she's just, you know, it had a really positive impact on me and others and, you know, that's, that's the best you can say about someone, I think, is that, you know, they've had a positive impact on people and on the world and uh, that, you know, they passed in peace. And so it's just, mm. yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, but mm. yeah. Mm. yeah. We can kind of contrast that with the, the second part of this, which is um, the mud scrabbling masses um, which is the, the, the Mengele aria. Yeah. And, and, and this kind of, yeah. 
I, I mean, uh, let me just read the last line because I, I, I kind of this last line for me is sort of a real um, fantastic line is the mud scrabbling masses of lizard mediocrity. And I kind of find that that line is just kind of just sits there. I don't know what I mean by that, but it kind of is a is a real sort of I don't know even I don't even know the word to, to describe it, but it kind of, kind of hangs there is sort of like a like something almost dark, I don't know, in it and this kind of thing. How did you, I mean, that, that's an amazing line. How did you come up with that line is the first thing. I mean, that's kind of, you know, lizard mediocrity. Yeah, this aria, um, this aria was built from a single line of his that I read. Um, he wrote an article about um, something horrible, I forget. Um, but basically he was saying what the aria says at the beginning, that he believes that 90% of humanity will starve because of stupidity like that the that kind of the human race is doomed because most of it like can't even handle living like can't even handle surviving mm -hmm. so like he had a really negative uh view of humanity <laughs> which is really obvious through his work yeah. and through his um mm -hmm. writing but he he's such a weird guy he um after after the um the camp was liberated he um, escaped to South America and was in hiding for a very long time and they were trying to find mm -hmm. him and we don't even know like when or if he died like it's very strange but his writing about humanity and about his philosophy there's a lot of it that he that we have and um, I didn't read through all of it and I didn't this was a tricky opera to do research for because usually I go like really hardcore on the on the research read a mm. lot this piece was so heavy and so emotionally taxing that i had to be extremely like strategic about my research and so there was i i really didn't do as much as i would just because it was too hard to like read all mm. of this and and do all of that research it took too much of an emotional toll so um, yeah. what I did read a lot, there's not much that's like, most of the time when I do this kind of work, I take a lot of quotes, um, from the people themselves, but Mengele, the only thing I took from him was this first line of the aria. Mm. And I built the mm. entire aria from that knowing, and I just wanted everyone to kind of know what was going on in his mind, like what his, like, what he thinks that his work is about what he thinks life is about what his drive is what his motivation is it's his like motivation aria and and you know and and i didn't i find it really hard to write villains in general but especially one that's a real person and genuinely i don't want to make him redeemable in any way because yeah i can't exactly. conscious conscious my conscience like I, I can't but it's also like you don't want to create a, a fake character because mm -hmm. then people are like oh if this like villain is fake like these people don't exist but these mm. people do exist and like the mun the mundane people are often the most evil because they're just going about their life like justifying what they're doing for whatever reason and that's what he was doing he was just going about his life justifying mm. these horrible horrible experiments because he thought that he was doing humanity a favor mm. of like yeah. figuring out how to make this like master race of humanity that would continue on and like overcome our stupidity or overcome the mediocrity that evolution had given us mm. and so that's that's kind of where this came from and also like i can't 
I was like, I could write a, I could put dinosaur and lizard as words in an opera. Yeah. I'm not going to pass that up. So. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, no, he was super no. into Darwinism in a way that was creepy. So that's why that's kind of in there. It's alluding to that like fixation on evolution and what is greatness, what is mediocrity, how does genetics kind of determine our future. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, this is something which I think, sadly, we see too much of again today. You know, it, it's kind of this, this, you know, you see the rise of eugenic arguments and this kind of thing. So I think it's very timely to have a reminder of, of, of these things. I mean, I think it's, it, it's always timely to have a reminder of these things. We should, we should never forget these. But I think it's kind of good that these things are coming out now again because i think it reminds us when we're in a, the situation we're in that there's these things happened and 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 just how mm, awful they are i mean that the words are just too impossible to describe so so well, let's listen to that piece anyway let's listen to that aria so this will be the uh, mud scrambling masses <laughs> percent of humanity will starve from stupidity.
That was uh, either in the Angel of Death. That was the mud scrabbling masses. I think we're kind of coming to the end of uh, uh, towards the end of the show. Um, but before you go, Aiden, what's next for you? What 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 things have you got coming up next? Tell us, give us a give us a taster of what you've got for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, even the Angel of Death is premiering in April on the twenty third and twenty fourth in Austin, Texas. Um, and we'll be accompanied by a lot of uh, scholarly uh, information, speeches, and um, museum things. And it's very cool. It's going to be very educational. And it, it is a positive opera, I promise. Like, it's, it's very happy and uplifting at the end. Um, and it's just really beautiful. Um, and then in June, I have two different operas premiering. One of them is about Emily Dickinson, and it's actually premiering in her house at the museum in uh, Amherst, which is very cool. Tickles me to no end, um, and it's about her relationship with her sister-in-law Susan, and kind of her queerness, and um, how uh, you know how her neurodivergency and her queerness were you know, stifled in her time and how she found ways to express that and express herself and find fulfillment for herself um, despite being unable to, you know, f be with her, uh, the person she loved the most, um, which was Susan. And so it's really great because I got to work with, like, a lot, of her, a lot of her poetry that you'll recognize and a lot of it that you will not. <laughs> and the letters between her and Susan and... Um, it's being uh, composed by Dana Kaufman, and it's really cool because it's for one voice for Emily, and then a pre-recorded trio of voices um, and electronics mm -hmm. is the accompaniment. So it's super interesting because there's the libretto for Emily, but then there's also the libretto for the voices, and it's just very a very cool piece. I'm so excited. And then the other one is with Strange Trace Opera. We're doing an opera called The Plague Bearer, which is based on a Polish medieval folktale of um, like a demon that uh, brings the plague. And again, it seems like it would be a downer, but it's actually not. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's comedic, mostly. Um, I mean, obviously, it's serious at times, but it's very cool. It has a non-binary blacksmith lead and a midwife who's being uh, accused of being a witch is the other lead, and they get together at the end, which is my favorite. <laughs> and um, it's got a lot of this old like Polish folk song sound in it, which was so cool to discover and learn for myself to me it sounds like metal like it sounds like metallica to mm. me but without the electronic instruments it's really cool um yeah so it's got this really gritty but also like lyric like folksy sound to it it's wonderful um stephanie lebowski is the composer on that and uh we have the privilege of writing for the strange trace opera collective so like i knew all the singers going in and wrote the pieces mm. specifically for them which has been really fun 
Um, so that's coming out in June as well. Um, I think that will be a movie format. So before it goes okay. to stage, it'll be out in film. Wow. And then hopefully in the nearest future, volume two of the anthology as well. <laughs> yeah. But we'll just keep fingers crossed that's not on the books yet. <laughs> if not by me, by someone else, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, thank you, Aidan. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, keep in touch and we'll talk to you again sometime in the future, I hope. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.